still not on, am I? Yeah, I'm on. Thank you, Lord. That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Clean. We're clean through the blood of Christ. Amen? And uh, how thankful we should be for the cross. And we come back to our uh, going verse to verse through the book of John. We're in chapter 19. Turn there with me if you would. John chapter 19. And this is the third message on the cross. And... Uh, and that precious blood that Laura just sang about that makes us clean and uh, clean forever. Well, again, I remind you John's writing about uh, mid-90s A.D. It's about 60 years after the cross. The other Gospels are written about 30 years after the cross. So this is about 30 years after the writing of the other Gospels. So John leaves some things unsaid that's already been said by the other Gospels, but he points out some things that the other Gospels didn't mention, uh, and uh, those are things that are important to his, uh, to his Gospel. Well, we've looked at the physical suffering of Christ, and we came down to verse 30, and there's where we ended, and that's where we'll start today in verse 30. Jesus has been on the cross now for six hours. It's three o'clock in the afternoon. Verse 30 says, When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Or the word ghost there is the word always translated spirit. He gave up his spirit in death. He chose the time and the moment and he was in full control, and he gave up his spirit to the Father. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for our time together today. Make it profitable, I pray. Teach us. Encourage us. Thank you for your great love that makes us clean through the blood. May we rejoice in that today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. I've said many times over the years, and you've heard me say it, it's the people we love the most that can hurt us the most. Uh, and you've probably heard me say, give this little illustration too, that uh, if I'm out in the, you know, maybe I'm out in front of the church and I'm doing something out towards the road there, and somebody drives by and they hang their head out the window and say, hey, preacher, you're ugly. Well, that's not going to bother me much, you know. I, I might say, same to you, buddy, or something like that, you know. I really wouldn't say that, but, but a stranger saying I'm ugly doesn't bother me. But if Miss Karen now, whom I've poured my whole life and love into, if she says I'm ugly, that's hurtful. But even more hurtful if she thinks I'm ugly on the inside. Now, I can't help being ugly on the outside. But if I thought Karen thought I was ugly on the inside, that caused tremendous emotional pain. Or my children, or my grandchildren, or my church family. I love you. I don't want you to think I'm ugly on the inside. That would cause me emotional pain, and I know it would you too. And so there's this emotional pain but now think of it in the extreme. A husband and wife, they're supposed to love each other from now on and be good to each other. One of them 
commits adultery is unfaithful in the marriage. One of them, another scenario, one of them says, I don't love you anymore, I'm leaving. What tremendous heartbreak that is. Think about a child and a parent. The parent's supposed to protect that child and watch over that child and make sure they're safe. And if that very one who's supposed to do that abuses that child, the emotional scars are tremendous. Physical abuse or sexual abuse. And so it's the ones we love that hurt us the most or can hurt us the most. Every now and then you hear of a child telling their parents, I hate you. Karen and I have been blessed. We've never heard that coming from our kids or grandkids, but I know many parents have, and it's heartbreaking. I want you to think with me for a moment of the Lord Jesus. Look up at your screen for a moment. When we think of his suffering, we think of his physical suffering, which we talked about last week. But I want you to think for a moment about his emotional suffering, like we've just been talking about. He loves us. He loves mankind. Remember, he came into his own, John 1, 11. He came into his own, and his own received him not. He was in the world, verse 10 says. He was in the world. The world was made by him, but the world knew him not. Think about when those soldiers scourged the Lord Jesus and they beat him across the back until his skin was pulled away, his bones were revealed and muscles were showing and it was a dreadful and terrible event. And as some historians tell us, sometimes one person doing the beating is not enough. They get too tired and so they alternate maybe two or three. Think about this. Jesus knew the ones who scourged him as God. Think about it. He, he knew their name. He knew their family. He knew their wife and their children. He knew they had four children, how old they were and so forth. He saw that man scourging his back, he saw that man when he was born and saw him take his first step as a toddler. He loved them. He, he loved the ones that were beating him and scourging him. He knew them. Can you imagine the emotional suffering that Christ went through. It was His creation. It was the ones whom He had made to have fellowship with Himself that was torturing Him. He knew those men who were beating Him. He knew the times in their lives, the few times, maybe the four or five times it happened in their lives that they had got to thinking about their sin and God and thought about repentance but instead they shook it off and went along their way Jesus knew them completely and fully the ones who cried out 
crucify him, crucify him. He could look out into the crowd and see one named Joseph and another named Jude and another and another and he knew their names and he knew their lives and he knew all about them and he loved them with an everlasting love. He knew the ones who beat him with their fists and clubs. He knew the ones who nailed him to the cross. And he knew the ones who passed by while he was on the cross. I don't believe I mentioned that last week. Here's some of the things they said when you look at the four Gospels together. John doesn't mention this, but when you look at the three synoptic Gospels together, some of the ones passing by shouted, Ah, you would destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. If you be the Son of God, come down from the cross. And they laughed and they mocked. And they spit upon him. The ruler said while he was on the cross, He saved others himself he cannot save. Let him save himself if he be the Christ, the chosen one of God. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he so desires. For he said, I am the Son of God. And they mocked and they laughed and Jesus knew them every one and loved them every one. Can you imagine someone you love treating you as such? The soldier said, if you be the king of the Jews, save yourself. And the two thieves said the same thing. If you're the Messiah, save yourself and us. Of course, one of them changed his mind while hanging on the cross for those six hours and called on Christ saying, remember me, Lord, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise, in heaven. And so there was this great emotional suffering. But then I want you to think about this. There was also a spiritual suffering this is the suffering of which Jesus cried in the garden. If it be your will, let this cup pass from me. When he agonized in the garden, he wasn't agonizing over the physical punishment. I've heard, I've heard people comment and say, well, there was other heroes in, in uh, the history of mankind who died more uh, torturous deaths even than that maybe did it in a victorious way but it wasn't the physical suffering that Jesus agonized over it was this spiritual suffering that he said let this cup pass from me but then he said nevertheless not as my, not my will but thy will father thy will be done and he went to the cross for us he cried on the cross these words from Psalm 22 in verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He cried these words that are recorded for us both in Matthew and in Mark. After darkness had come upon the, on the land at 12 o'clock noon and when it got close to 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus cried cries out these words now this is 
prophecy. The prophecy tells us this is going to happen a thousand years before it happens. But Jesus says the exact words on the cross. Verse 3, I put those words in there to give us the idea of the purpose of it. Why did the Father forsake the Son? Because He's holy. And Jesus was bearing our sin. And in some way, He was becoming guilty of my sin and your sin on the cross. And God the Father in His holiness had to break fellowship with His Son. Think about it for a few moments with me. He became guilty of our sin. Our sin was put over on the Him. And He bore our sin on that cross. And in a way we cannot understand... The Bible says he became that sin for us. He became sin. The very terrible things that mankind had done, he became those things. Bearing the guilt and the weight of it. Every lie, every mean or unkind word ever spoken was laid upon him. Every bit of adultery and every bit of sexual sin, violent sins like rape and murder, those things were placed upon him and he, in his holiness and in his own innocence, was becoming sin, the sin bearer for us. Every bit of child abuse and every bit of sexual child abuse and every homosexual act and every act of a serial killers and every sin of those who somehow find pleasure in torturing other people. All of these, all the darknesses, all of the hideous things of mankind was placed upon him for us. Because he loved us. My sin, your sin was placed upon him. So his righteousness, as Laura talked about, his righteousness is placed upon us. That when the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So there was the spiritual suffering. Second Corinthians says, For he made him... That is, he the Father hath made him the Son to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus suffered physically, emotionally, and he suffered spiritually. Now come back to your text with me if you would please. And let's pick it up in verse 30 where Jesus says, it is finished. It's one word in the Greek, so if you were just reading it, just the one word, it would simply say, finished. And uh, it was used uh, in uh, an everyday language of a, of a bill that had been paid. Let's suppose you were getting groceries at a certain store, and at the end of the month you went in to pay your bill, and the man who owned the store, he had a list of everything you owed, and all of those all of those things you owed and uh, you would pay your bill and then he would write across it finished 
This exact same Greek word, finished, it means paid in full. You and I had a list of sins that we had committed all through our life. And Jesus cried out, finished, paid in full across our list. Yes, hallelujah. This one word is, is in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means a, a present reality that has uh, a lasting effect. And so we might say it like this, finished now and forever. Finished now and forever. The price has been paid for our sin. And then look at the next verse. The Jews, therefore, because it was the preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, um, that the body should not remain upon the cross on the Sabbath day, the Sabbath being Saturday, of course. So that would mean this was Friday. Now, there is a, you, can make a, you can make a good argument from Scripture that the cross took place on Thursday. You can make a good argument that it took place on Friday. If it took place on Friday, there was only three parts of days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. If it took place on Thursday, there was uh, a three full days. But it doesn't work out perfectly either way because Jesus died at 3 o'clock and rose early in the morning. So it's not exactly three 24-hour days either way. Uh, so if Jesus died on Friday, which is what I think is the most likely, then this Sabbath refers to the Saturday Sabbath. But if he, if he died on Thursday, then the Sabbath was... Uh, can be used and was used by Jews to describe the holy day of, of uh, Passover. So uh, there's not really, some people use this as a proof that this happened on Friday, but actually since the term Sabbath can be used for, a, for any holy day, uh, that is necess not necessarily proof. And so it was, the Sabbath was a high day, it says, and they besought Pilate that the legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So, you remember, people could live on the cross for hours and hours or even days. They could live on the cross suffering. But if you broke their legs, they would die within minutes. And that was a pretty common practice. Uh, if there wasn't a purpose, though, to hasten their death, they would not only hang on the cross for hours or days, but even after they died, they would leave them up there until their bodies decayed and animals came and ate them and so forth. They did that, again, as a warning. This is what happens when you disobey Rome. And, uh, but since this was a Sabbath, or it was approaching the Sabbath, they didn't want dead bodies on the cross during the Sabbath. And so if in, in, in the case in which I think is most likely this is Friday, the preparation day for the Sabbath on Saturday, and they broke their legs. Look at verse 32. Then came the soldiers and break the legs of the first and of the other. 
that was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already, and they break not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith came there out blood and water. Piercing the side was a common practice. It was uh, to, uh, for someone on the cross, it was to make sure they were dead. And uh, so this soldier, seeing that it looked like Jesus was dead, he thrust the spear into his side. They would, they would thrust the spear into the side so that with that upward thrust it would go into the heart and it would be a death blow. If they were wrong and the person was not completely dead yet, this would, uh, this would kill them immediately. But uh, so this was to check to see if he was alive. And it says, and there came forth blood and water. Now, verse 35 emphasizes this blood and water. Look what he says. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true, and he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. John says, I saw this happen, and I'm, I'm testifying to it. I'm recording it so that you'll know it's true, and so you will believe. Now, what does the blood in the water signify? A lot of people have found symbolic meanings in the blood and the water that came from Jesus' side. For instance, this is more of a Catholic mindset. Uh, they see the uh, water as baptism, infant baptism. Or, and then they see the, uh, the uh, blood as uh, communion, taking the Eucharist. And so they see symbolic meaning in that. Protestants more see a symbolic meaning like this. The blood represents justification, because we're justified by the blood. And the water illustrates um, sanctification. Now, once we're justified, God's working on us through the water of the Word to sanctify us. That may be a symbolic meaning here. But there's nothing here to indicate that we should take this symbolic, symbolically. We should take it literally and for exactly what happened. I think what this blood and water is saying is that Jesus was in a real body. He was a real person. And these experts in execution and experts in death knew that he was dead, for sure dead, because of the reaction of this water and blood. Now, if we go to the medical world, there's a lot of medical experts who have written on this subject, and I, I find it quite interesting. Some of them think that maybe Jesus died of a heart attack or that he died of a broken heart. When all those sins were placed on him, he died of a broken heart. Now, we know he dismissed his spirit, so it was, his, it was at his time and his, uh, his choice 
but the physical part of the body had to die and uh, so some people think it was of a broken heart even Dr. Terman Davis who's an MD says um, thus there was an escape of watery fluid from the sac surrounding the heart and the blood of the in, of the interior of the heart this is rather conclusive post-mortem evidence that Jesus died not the usual crucifixion death by uh, asphyxiation or suffocation but of heart failure due to shock and the constriction of the heart by fluid in the uh, pericardium one quote here's another this is from a cardiothoracic surgeon Dr. Anthony Demoni and he says and I quote the withdrawal of the spear would have been uh, would have been followed first by the red blood cells which would make them red blood that would be the blood and then by the lighter colored plasma that would have been the water it goes on to say the heavy the heavy red cells sink to the bottom leaving a much lighter straw colored fluid the plasma above end of quote here's another one a, a doctor Ed Nelson MD practicing MD he says quoting someone else at the moment of death the stream of blood and water flowed from his side declaring that he had died of a broken heart his heart was broken by mental anguish he was slain by the sin of the world I've got more as well but I think that's sufficient so some feel that his heart he died of a heart attack one one author explained the difference between a heart attack and a heart rupture where in rare cases the heart actually ruptures or burst and some think that happened to the Lord Jesus but when you when you put all the medical experts advice in we at least know this much if you look back at your screen for a moment that uh, when you take blood that's not in a live person circulating through the veins the blood divides between the red blood cells and the lighter color plasma and uh, you can see people who are in the medical field have done probably done this very thing right here uh, and here's a little illustration of it eventually the you have 55 percent plasma plasma and 45 percent red blood cells and it separates like this so that top part would have been the water the blood would have come out first because the spear was coming from the bottom into the heart and uh, and then the plasma would have come out after that here's the clothing uh, the that uh, sack around the heart that one of the doctors spoke about and so we have this water and the blood it proves I think more than anything else that Jesus was dead and that he was human now why is that important well we've got some theories like the swoon theory and things like that that said he didn't really die but more importantly what John was facing in his day which is again about mid 90s AD 
what he was facing was a false teaching called uh, docentism. Docentism taught that Jesus wasn't really a person. He was a uh, he was an, an illusion. He was a phantom. He was like a spirit, but that you could see him, but the seeing of him was some kind of illusion and that he really was not physical flesh and bone. Now eventually uh, docetism merged with Gnosticism and by the second century the church had, that had said that these teachings were heretical, that they were false teaching coming from false teachers. But at this point that view was circulating through the church. And John says here, it was not a phantom. I saw blood and water coming from a real body, a real body that suffered these real pains. And he said, I say this now so that you might believe. Pick it up again in verse 35. And he that saw it bear record, and his record is true. And he knoweth that he saith true, that ye might believe. And then he says, for these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. A bone of him shall not be broken. There are really several passages that people point to here that says his bone, not a bone of him would be broken. Also, the Passover lamb had to be without blemish and no broken bone. Jesus became our Passover lamb, of course, on the cross. And so these things took place so that prophecy might be filled. God spoke about these things 700 to 1,000 more years before they happened, depending on which one of the prophets he's prophesying through. So, this first one said not a bone of him would be broken. And then there was a second prophecy that this fulfilled. Look at verse 37. And again, another scripture saith, they shall look on him whom they pierced. They pierced him with this spear, and they looked upon him there on the cross. But that passage, verse 37's prophecy, comes from Zechariah 12:10, and it's really talking about the second coming. And the Jewish people shall see Jesus when he comes back, and they will see it is, it is. He whom they pierced. And so these prophecies had to be fulfilled. By the way, J. Vernon McGee said that the prophecies on the, just while Jesus was on the cross, 28 prophecies were fulfilled from the Old Testament. I've pointed out the ones that John has mentioned, of course, but if you put all the Gospels together, the, the four Gospels, 28 prophecies fulfilled what a savior we have now we're going to watch it's a short video about two minutes 
And uh, it may have happened something like this. Let's watch it together. his head and gave up his spirit. Then the Jewish authorities asked Pilate to allow them to break the legs of the men who had been crucified and to take the bodies down from the crosses. They requested this because it was Friday. And they did not want the bodies to stay on the crosses on the Sabbath, since the coming Sabbath was especially holy. So the soldiers went and broke the legs of the first man, and then of the other man, who had been crucified with Jesus. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead, so they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers, however, plunged his spear into Jesus' side, At once, blood and water poured out. The one who saw this happen has spoken of it, so that you may also believe. What he said is true, and he knows that he speaks the truth. This was done to make the scripture come true. Not one of his bones will be broken. There is another scripture that says, people will look at him whom they pierced. <laughs> 